How do you feel about feet? Some of you, just those two words, feeling and feet together, it just, it turned you off already. You're done. Don't want anything to do with that, right? Even, even in the shower, you don't, you don't go down there. You know, the soap, it'll get down there. It'll cover that. I'm not, I'm not doing that. How, how do you respond if somebody else's bare feet get close to you? What's your reaction if they, if they happen to touch you? I think that I may have permanently scarred some of our, our students at one <clears throat> winter retreat in a game that I chose to play that involved bare feet and writing of, of letters on the bottom of those bare feet and then they were in groups and they had to move their feet around and spell out certain words and phrases. It's one of those that has gone down in, in legend. We have this thing that we do sometimes with phrases, like our phrase for this conference, how beautiful are the feet, where the image that we apply to that phrase doesn't really match what the author was intending. I'll give you a great example, and you've probably seen this one before. Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Now, now, when you see that psalm done up with a nice picture on Pinterest or somewhere else, many times the picture is of a lush forest, grass everywhere, trees growing, and a deer that has its face in a stream drinking deeply. Now, it looks nice, but it's basically the exact opposite of the psalm. There's nobody panting for anything. There's just satisfaction everywhere. Well, this morning we're in Romans chapter 10 because that's where this phrase for our theme comes from, how beautiful are the feet, but we can do the same thing. And I did just to see what would happen. I did a search on Google for beautiful feet, and I was very careful. I typed it in. I didn't want to get a bunch of gross pictures of weird people's feet or anything like that. So I tried to type it in the verse, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so I did a search, and without a doubt, the majority of pictures that I got were of nice, clean footprints and a lot of really nice, manicured, clean feet. And then that verse, how beautiful are the feet. But that's not the image that the Apostle Paul has in mind. It would be better for us to picture dirty, weather-worn, dry, broken, dirty nails, cracked, calloused skin feet. Right? I mean, the image here is that the feet themselves are gross, they're disgusting, they're feet that have traveled to carry a message, and it's not the feet themselves that are beautiful. The feet are supposed to be ugly, and the only thing that makes them beautiful is the message that they carry. So I hope right now, lodged in your mind to some of your utter disgust, you will picture some really nasty feet. Not like American feet that spend most of their time trapped in socks and shoes, but feet from other places in the world where they rarely put on closed-toed shoes, and their feet are exposed, and they're, they're, they're hard, almost like leather, and they're dirty, and they're calloused. Those types of feet need to be in mind, because if you have those feet in mind, you will recognize that it would take something absolutely extraordinary for those feet to be called beautiful. 
And that's exactly what Paul has in mind here as he quotes from Isaiah. Here's the big idea I want us to grasp this morning that I would like to communicate to you. And it is this, that it is the message that drives the mission. It is the message that drives the mission. Romans chapter 10 is not per se a missions text like we would think of the Great Commission passages in the Gospels or the beginning of the book of Acts. But we do have theological truths here that connect very deeply with uh, what we're talking about in missions. And this is one of those, that it is the message that drives the mission. So in order to to fill that out, I want to answer three questions. What is the mission? What is the message? And then how does the message drive the mission? What is the mission? What is the message? And then how does the message drive the mission? Now, I'm going to answer that first question briefly because next week Paul is going to spend some time on this. And I'm going to let him answer every question about the difference between missions and being missional and being on mission. And what is a missionary? And are the missionary people who go cross-culturally or stay here? All of that. And Paul is panicking right now, I know, because he's already told me he's not going to try and answer all his questions. But I'm going to put that on him and he'll sort all that out. But when I look at this text, here's where I would land to say this is the mission. Look at verse 13, which says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the goal, right? That's the mission. That's the goal in this passage. That's Paul's mission. That's his goal, that as many as possible would call on the name of the Lord and be saved. That's it. That's what he's striving for. Now, maybe we'd have to add this, and again, I don't want to spend a a lot of time here, that in our American minds, we can think that that means Paul's going around doing tent revivals, and, and he gives a sermon, and then the 25 verses of just as I am to try and get people to walk down the aisle, sign a card, pray a prayer. This is not conversion ism, if you will, that Paul's going. This is people placing saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and living lives, being conformed to Christ's image and worshiping God. That's the goal, okay? That's what it is it we're striving after. So that's the mission. So then what is the message? Well, when we look at this text, I think the message begins to first appear in verse 8. We started with with verse 5 to get some context. But look at verse 8 with me. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith we proclaim. So here we have, this is what Paul was proclaiming. This is what the other apostles proclaimed. It's this word of faith. So then we Of course, ask the question, well, what is this word of faith? And I think verse 9 helps us to understand what this word of faith contained, what what was in that. Verse 9 tells it says this, because you confess with your mouth, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So we have the lordship of Jesus Christ and we have the fact that he was raised from the dead which would obviously imply that he had been crucified and buried and he's risen. Jesus is God and he's raised from the dead. Well now that we have this connection that Jesus is Lord 
as we continue through the passage, we know exactly who Paul is talking about every time we see this word, Lord. So when we get to verse 12, and we read this, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all. That Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is not our focus for this morning, but that truth is so important, and without that truth, we would not need to have this conference. We would not need to talk about this. If there was a one Lord for America and another Lord for Mexico and another Lord for Russia and another Lord for a, another country or for different continents, we would not need to be doing this. But there is one Lord Jesus Christ who is Lord over all. And so as we continue, and we looked already at verse 13, when Paul says, everyone or whosoever calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. That Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we come to verses 14 and 15, where, where Paul lays out this logical argument using rhetorical questions that the answer is so obvious he doesn't even give it to us. He, he knows we're going to respond with, he knows his audience is going to respond with a negative answer. Now I confess, I've heard this passage read so many times, I've read this passage so many times, I've heard this passage preached many times, but it wasn't until this week as I was reading through it that I realized I had misunderstood in some ways. I had read it so many times and gotten so familiar that I was reading into it something and missing an important detail. When I read it, what I would do is I would take that good news from verse 15, and I kind of pushed it back up into verse 14 in the beginning of 15. So here's how I was reading it. How then will they call on the good news in which they have not believed? And how are they to believe in the good news of which they have not heard? And how are they to hear the good news without someone preaching? And how are they to preach the good news unless they are sent? Now in one sense that's not wrong, but it passes over a really important detail that may seem really insignificant because it amounts to a masculine singular pronoun that's actually in those places where I was inserting good news, right? What does it actually say? How then will they call on him? Well, who's the him? Well, the him is the Lord from verse 13. Well, who's the Lord from verse 13? We know that the Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. That is who they must call on. That's who they must believe. That is who they must hear about. That's who must be preached. The message is about him. So when we look at that quote from Isaiah 52 that we read this morning, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news, that definite article, it's not just a random good news and it's not just an object, it is in fact a person, it is the Lord Jesus Christ that is that good news. And so in verse 17, when all of this is summed up by the Apostle Paul, he says this, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That could be translated the word about Christ. Our message is the word about 
Christ, the good news that makes ugly feet beautiful is not any message. It's not my message. It's not about my faith. It is the word about Christ. That's so important. And we live in a day and time when I think this can get confused. We can Well, for instance, we can confuse, as it were, my own personal testimony in the effects of the gospel or the good news in my life with what Paul is talking about here of what the good news actually is. It is a good news what God has done in my life, but it is not the good news. Paul speaks here of this good news. It is so clearly in this text. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is who he is and what he has accomplished. So let's fill that out a a little more. Because I think there are two aspects, as it were, to that in this text. And that are important for us to see. Two aspects of this word about Christ. And one are the historical facts. The historical facts. When When you look back at... At verses 13 and 14, you'll notice there's this this call and believe, a calling and a believing. The calling in this context is is that placing saving faith in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's receiving by faith what Christ has fully accomplished. But in order to get to that place of calling on him, you must must first believe. Well, what is being believed? I think what Paul's talking about is almost exactly what we just heard in the, the video this morning. There is truths about who Jesus is and what he did that must be understood and must be accepted as fact. There are historical events that took place that must be believed. So I think that's one of the aspects of this message, these words about Christ that must be understood. There are historical facts Jesus of Nazareth lived. He died at the hands of Rome. His body was laid in a tomb, and there are eyewitnesses to his resurrection. These are historical facts that that are part of this message. So in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 6, Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according, in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. There is historical facts that are incredibly important and they're part of this message. And, and I know that may not seem super exciting, but let me tell you, it's important. And even when we talk about missions, it's important. Because the reality is the cost of missions is very high. We could be talking about the cost of going, leaving a culture that you're comfortable with, leaving family and friends, going cross-culturally to a culture you don't know, to becoming, as it were, almost like an infant again and having to learn all over again. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that is an incredibly humbling thing. It's a very difficult thing to do. And when the cost gets to that level, you can find yourself asking the question, do I have this right? We could be just talking about the financial cost of investing in sending people. 
investing in seeing this good news go out. And when we think about those things, we may find ourselves going, hey, is this, is this right? Is this worth it? I'll tell you what else was a challenge to me. It was a challenge to me to get to Senegal and to be talking with people who were just as committed to their good news, if you will, as I was committed to mine. They were just as committed to what the Quran taught as good news as I was committed to what the Bible taught as good news. And so then this conflict began to rise in this guy who had been raised in almost exclusively Christian circles where everybody was in agreement that this one good news was the good news and we were all on the same page together and I found myself going, wait a second, is this just a matter of my opinion versus their opinion? Is this just a matter of I chose Jesus and they chose Muhammad? I found myself questioning and doubting and and one of the great benefits was to come back to this, that my thoughts about who Christ is were not just opinions that I had formed. They weren't just ideas I had pulled out of the sky. They weren't just things I believed because my parents had persuaded me that it was true like Santa Claus. My parents didn't tell me that Santa Claus was true, by the way. Don't, don't worry about that. I could look back and I could ask myself some very basic questions. Was there a man named Jesus from Nazareth? Yes, there was. Did he die at the hands of Rome? Yes, yes he did. Was he buried? Yes, yes he was buried. Is there a body still in that tomb? No, there is not. The message about Jesus is important because this message, God went through great lengths sending his son to put on flesh so that this message about him did not take place in some faraway land removed from real time and space history But there are real events that took place in real time and space history. There are facts about the Lord Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he did. So that's one aspect of this. There are facts. there There are real events that happened. And those things can be, as it were, an encouragement to us as we're reminded of them. Why? Well, because those historical facts, of course, resulted in the accomplishment of something. There are implications, there are effects of those facts. A great example of this is in Acts chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles open and you want to go over to Acts chapter 2, you can do that. Acts chapter 2, this is a great example of these two historical facts and the implication, the effects of those facts being meshed together. And this is a great place. The reason I picked this is because this is the first message preached by a spirit-filled Peter, day of Pentecost. This is an evangelistic message. So Peter preaching this message, having just received the Holy Spirit, this is the first message, what I believe to be the launch of the church. If Peter only knew how scrutinized it would be. What did his PowerPoint font look like? And what was his opening illustration? And how many points did they have? And did, did they all rhyme or something? And what was his conclusion? And you know, Peter wasn't worried about all of those things. But having assured people that he wasn't drunk and none of the people hanging out with him are drunk, I've not had to do that yet in my preaching experience. 
sure people I'm not drunk, but he got through that, and then he quotes from Joel, and then after quoting from Joel, look at Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He says this, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. What's the subject of this first great sermon? It's not about Peter. It's not about his testimony. Peter had a pretty radical testimony. I mean, it wasn't all that long ago that he was denying Christ. It wasn't all that long ago he was calling down curses on himself, denying that he knew Jesus, and abandoning his Lord and Savior at his greatest moment of need. But that's not what Peter stands up to proclaim. As good a news as that was, that was not the gospel. What does Peter say? Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. What is he appealing to? Historical facts. These things happened. You saw them. You know them. Anyone who was there could have said, um, excuse me, Peter, We know this is a made-up story. We know none of this happened, but not a single one of them could. Why? Because these events took place in real time and space history. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Skip down to verse 32, After Peter quotes from David, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now anyone there could have shouted out, hey, let's stop this nonsense, let's just go to the tomb and we'll see his dead body still laying there. Well, they couldn't do that because there wasn't a body in the tomb. They couldn't do that because because he had risen. Peter is appealing to the fact that they themselves were eyewitnesses of this risen Lord Jesus Christ. And he's drawing these implications then. What does that mean? Well, it means that he is Lord over all. Look at verse 36 and 37. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. These historical events accomplished salvation. God in the flesh, living a perfect life, dying a sacrificial death, being buried and rising in victory over sin and death, and now being exalted to the right hand of the Father, has fully accomplished salvation in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. When they heard what? When they heard how eloquent Peter was at speaking. When they saw how beautiful his PowerPoint was. When he used that great illustration that made you laugh and want to cry at the same time. When he told his inspiring testimony about how he began as a humble fisherman. And had now risen to the heights of being an apostle. And if you would dedicate your life to Christ, you too could be as great as Peter. That's not the message. 
message was all about Christ. What Christ had done and what Christ had accomplished. Because only what Christ had done was good news. It's what Christ had fully accomplished. That was the good news. And when they heard that good news, they were cut to the heart. Acts chapter 2 verse 37 matches almost perfectly with what we read in our passage in chapter 10 verse 17. So you can go back to Romans chapter 10 if you want to. If you went to Acts 2, you can go back to Romans 10 verse 17. Look at that. It says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ or the word about Christ. What is Paul saying? People have to believe. They need to call on the name of the Lord. Well, how are they going to call? Well, they have to believe. What are they going to believe in? They're believing in him. How is that faith awakened? How does it happen? Well, verse 17, Paul's summing up this logical argument that he makes. He says simply this, that faith is awakened through the hearing of the word about Christ. That's how it happens. And no other way. This is the way that it happens. The good news about Jesus Christ is proclaimed, heralded, announced to them. That is the message and that message alone that the Spirit of God uses to awaken believing faith in people. Reminds me of what Jesus said in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, Jesus takes this analogy of the good shepherd or of shepherding. John chapter 10 verse 1, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the, keep, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Right? You get the image? All of the sheep, many of the sheep, different folds would be brought together in one place overnight for keeping. How would they separate the sheep back out? By hearing the shepherd's voice. Because the sheep knew their shepherd's voice. And so their shepherd would give his distinct call and his voice and his sheep would come to him and they would all be separated out. So Jesus is taking that analogy, that image, and in verse 14 of John 10, he continues by saying, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. What does he say is going to happen? They're going to hear his voice, and they're going to respond. They're going to, they're going to come to him. They're going to hear his voice, the voice of the shepherd, and, and they're going to respond. Well, here's this interesting thing. If, if you look back at verse 14, the second question of verse 14 there says, and how are they to believe in him of whom is the way the ESV translates it. And you might have a little note there and, and that says there's a footnote here. And the footnote is that it could also be translated, they, they, uh, it could be translated, and are, how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? Which would mean what? That it's Christ who's doing the speaking. It's not just hearing about him, but it's hearing 
him. Which is what we hear in, verse, uh, in John chapter 10. How are his sheep going to respond? It is when the sheep hear his voice. How do his sheep hear his voice? It is as the word about Christ is preached. As it is declared. As it is heralded. Christ speaks, not saying with an audible voice, but Christ speaks through the words about him. That's how they hear his voice. And so it is for that reason, because only as this good news of the gospel is declared about the Lord Jesus Christ, that his sheep hear his voice and respond That Paul starts out this letter to the church at Rome in Romans 1 verse 16, which you probably know well. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of this good news. Why? For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek This gospel, this good news, and this gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation. So the message is what? Well, it's a very definite message. It's not up for debate or for discussion. The message is what Jesus Christ has fully accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. That's the message. That's what we proclaim, that there is salvation in no one else. That a historical Jesus died a real death, was buried, and rose again, and fully accomplished salvation on our behalf. That's the message. So how does that message drive the mission? Well, we could put it simply this way. If we don't have a message, then we don't have a mission. Right? If verse 13 was our goal, that's our mission, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, then if there is not a Lord to call on, then no one can be saved. If we don't need people to call on the Lord, then we don't need people to believe in Him. If we don't need people to believe in Him, then we don't need people to hear about Him. And if we don't need people to hear about Him, then we don't need anybody to preach Him. And if we don't need anybody to preach Him, we don't need to send anyone. Makes sense, right? If we don't have a message, then we don't have a mission. This is exactly what Paul essentially says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, when they're debating about the resurrection from the dead. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If this message isn't true, then there is no mission. There's no point in giving our funds to send people around the world because we have nothing to tell them. Other than maybe to debate our opinion with their opinion, I don't know. But we don't have a mission if we don't have a message. It is this message that drives the mission it is because of who Jesus is and what he fully accomplished that we have a mission. Because there is salvation in no other name, we have 
a mission. Because Jesus really lived, because he really died, because he really rose from the dead, we have a mission because what he accomplished was sufficient that all who would call upon him would be saved. And so because of that message, do you remember where we were last week if you were with us, the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 9? Because of that message, that good news, that gospel, Paul says this, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of what? The gospel. I do it all for the sake of this good news that I may share with them in its blessings. What was driving Paul? This good news, this message, it's what drove him. I'll become all things, I'll become all things to all people that by any means I might save some. Why? Because of this message, it's what's driving me. And so later on, even in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 15, verses 20 and 21, he would say, and this I make, and thus I make my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. What's driving Paul? What's his ambition? The declaration of this message. Now I know some of you this morning, I can look out, I do pay attention to you by the way, as I'm staring out here. Some of you, I can see almost, you're ready to take notes and you're going, I'm waiting for him to say something profound. Something I didn't know before. And you're ready. And I haven't said it yet. And guess what? That's all purposeful. That's all purposeful. We don't need a new message. We don't need something new. We don't need a new formula, a new exciting thing. What we need to do is be reminded of this message that every member here at Baraka Bible Church has signed off on in our doctrinal statement. That there is a historical Jesus who lived the perfect life accomplishing what you and I could not. He died an atoning death in our place. Perfectly satisfying the just wrath of a holy God for your sins and mine. He was buried and on the third day he rose again. All of that is historical fact. And now he has risen and is ruling and reigning at the right hand of the Father. And he is coming again. We declare that. We testify to that. We believe that. But we so often forget that message. And we don't need a new one. We need to be reminded of that one. And we need to be reminded that it is that message that drives our mission. Because what's the reality? The reality is we get distracted. <laughs> we can declare really loudly, like I just did, that message. We can affirm it. We can sign off on it. We can recite creeds about it. And then what happens? Flies happen. <laughs> Flies. You think you don't get distracted? Have you not heard about the fly on the vice president's head for two minutes and three seconds? I know it was two minutes and three seconds because somebody wasted two minutes and three seconds counting that it was two minutes and three seconds. 
We're talking about the vice president of the United States of America. We're talking about a time of an election. We're talking about a vice presidential debate. People who know a lot about politics and policies are listening intently to hear what's said or what's not being said. And everyone was immediately distracted by what? A fly in someone's hair. Well, if a fly can distract us from something as important as a vice presidential debate, I can assure you that a pandemic can distract us from the message that drives us on mission. I assure you that concerns about presidential election can take our focus to the place where we forget while holding to declaring this message we can forget how it drives us on mission i can assure you hey i don't even need anything that big let's just be honest i mean my car can break down i'm out dude seriously are you kidding me i'm distracted my eyes go from looking at this level of this great mission that God has given to us because he has given us this great message of a completed work by our Lord Jesus Christ and I'm right here screaming at a car or a kid, whichever. Frustrated, upset, distracted, not focused. And what do I need? Well, I can tell you what I need. I need for my eyes to be lifted up again. I need to be reminded of this message Here's, here's a danger. When you do these world missions conferences and you do this kind of stuff, there's a way to get people motivated for a little bit of time into missions, and it's through guilt. It's to talk about the fact that we're sitting in plush chairs and there's air conditioning and you're wearing nice clothes. Well, most of you. Wearing nice clothes. You look nice this morning. And there are people in the world that don't have that. And all of the rights that you have and people don't have that. Guilt is a terrible motivator. An awful motivator. It burns out so fast. Guilt didn't motivate the Apostle Paul. He didn't feel guilty because he was a Jew. And as he lays out in the book of Romans, there was great advantages to being a Jew. They had the law and the prophets. He wasn't guilted by that. It's what motivated Paul, this message. And the heralding, the declaring, the preaching of this message, that's what motivated him. What motivated him was that Jesus himself had said, I have other sheep. And they're going to hear my voice. And here's how they're going to hear it. You are going to speak the words about me. And they are going to hear my voice through your declaring, preaching, announcing. And they are going to follow the shepherd. They're going to call on him. And they will be saved. And so Paul says, with that message, I will do whatever it takes. I'll do whatever it takes. So my question this morning, Baraka, is not whether or not you sign on to this message. Hey, if you're here this morning and you don't sign on to this message, come and talk to me about it. I would love to talk more about this great message, about who Christ is. But I'm looking at most of you, and most of you affirm this message. And so my question to you this morning is, is this message driving you on mission? Do you understand that this message demands, as Paul lays out here in this passage, it demands that we move out on mission? How are we doing with that? 
Has this year of 2020 that has been full of so many things, has it distracted you? How are we doing as a local church in identifying that this gospel that we sing about and we preach and we pray and we read, that it also drives us out? I'll just take one indicator maybe of how we're doing in this, and I'll say one possible indicator could be what our young people are doing. This isn't to put the spotlight on all of, all of the young people in here. I say young people because I mean kids too, young adults. Are young people thinking differently about their lives? How do they think about their education, where they're going to go to college, what they're going to major in? How do they think about the career path that they're going to choose? How do they think about whether or not they're going to pursue marriage or not pursue marriage? How do they think about money? How do they think about where they're going to live? Are they growing up? Are they understanding that this message that we hold to, that the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord over all, also has a mission? Are are we seeing them driven in that way? Is that what we're seeing? Are we seeing them say, yes, I think God has equipped me in this way and I'm going to pursue this career path because I think this gives me as many opportunities as possible to connect with people, to declare this message to others? Are they thinking in that way? Are they thinking about who they date and who they might marry? Are they thinking even now about the little bit of money they have coming in, thinking, I'm a steward of this and I want to see this used. I want to take these earthly possessions that I can't take with me that are going to fade and I want to invest them in God's kingdom and then they result in eternal things are they thinking that way I say they're a good indicator because these things are not just taught but as the phrase goes I think they're mostly caught I think our young people will look like that if we look like that adults I think our young people will grasp that and will grow in that way if they see us living that way not just talking that way But they see us actually functioning in the practical aspects of everyday life that way. Why do we drive such an old car? Because we don't have room in the budget. Why don't we have room in the budget? Because we're giving money away to see the gospel advance. Dad, why didn't you take that promotion? Why didn't we move over here or over there? Because our biggest concern is not about climbing the corporate ladder. My biggest concern is about being where God would have me to be, to be able to impact as many people as possible in the job that he's given me, in this career path. That was number one, and as we thought about it and prayed about it, it just wasn't best. Are they catching this from us? Is the message driving our mission? That's my prayer this morning for us, for myself I want us to faithfully confess this, mis- this message of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I also desire to see that message, as it penetrates our hearts and transforms our lives, drive us to mission. And giving, and praying, and going. Until every, someone from every tongue, and every tribe, and every nation is worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ.
we're thankful for what he fully accomplished. We're thankful that we do not need to try and figure out what the message is. We don't have to point to ourselves, but we have the blessing of pointing to the accomplished work of Christ. And I pray, Father, that this message would drive us in mission. That the Lord Jesus Christ would be exalted and receive the worship and the praise for which he is worthy. We ask it in his name. Amen.